The world is looking for a sign. The world is looking for deliverance. And quite frankly, the Lord, the world needs a miracle. You can see this on any channel, just about any time of the day. At some point throughout the course of a week, just about every channel that you can flip to has some type of religious programming on it. Most of these people, not all of them, but most of these people seek to authenticate themselves and their ministries by performing some type of miracle. Now let me tell you, without reserve, these people that are claiming that they are uh, performing miracles are false teachers. But what's so dangerous about them, and hear me, don't misunderstand when I say this, what's so dangerous about them is that to the extent that it benefits themselves and it benefits their own ministries or organizations, they are seeking to be imitators of Jesus Christ. They are seeking to be, benefit, to be imitators of Jesus Christ in so much that it benefits themselves. This is what I mean. Jesus used miracles, real, true, historical miracles, to authenticate himself and to show himself as the Son of God. How do I know this? Well, we've already studied the passage I'm about to mention to you. John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31 says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his, of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. All the miracles written in the book of John, and in fact, everything that's written in the Bible, from cover to cover, Old Testament, New, is written for the sole purpose of disclosing Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God. The book of John makes it very easy because he tells you at the very end, I wrote these things so that you know that these miracles disclose exactly who Jesus Christ is. These miracles can only be done by the Son of God. And since Jesus did them, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. So that is how we have to frame everything in the book of John as we begin. How does this text, how does this miracle disclose to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How is this miracle disclosing to us that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah? Our text this morning is very interesting because it's the very first miracle recorded in the book of John. And we're going to read that passage right now that's found in John 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'd ask that as we read Scripture together, you can follow along with me. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version that you would stand out of respect for His Word. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, it did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Please be seated. Now, there are three things that I really want to draw our attention to this morning. First, we're going to see the event itself. We need to understand the event. Secondly, we're going to look at the actual miracle itself as well. And then from that, the third thing that I want you to see is there is an expectation that we as the reader should have that is reasonable to draw from this text. So we have the event, we have the miracle, and then we have the expectation. First and foremost, the event. We have to understand what's going on. It's a wedding. Just like we would have today. It's a wedding that Jesus, his mother, and his disciples have actually been invited to. In and of itself, it's not anything special, but there are several things that we can draw from the text to help us understand what all was going on and help us understand who Jesus Christ is. First off, within the event, we see that Jesus was with the people. Jesus was with the, the people. Up to this point, he did not have much of a public ministry. We know that when he was younger, he was ministering and teaching the rabbis in the synagogue and the temple. But other than that, we don't know a whole lot about him. At this point, there's a transition where he's going to become very public, and he's out with the people. Now, this is very important because he's not locked up into some ivory tower. He's not locked up in an, out, in an office somewhere. He's out about with his disciples, with his people, and he's beginning his ministry. He's out seeking to save that which is lost. And this is the very beginning of it. The conclusion that we can draw from this very easy and by implication is he's out doing the Father's will. He's actively seeking to do the Father's will. He's doing it perfectly. And we, by implication, are drawn to be imitators of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ, God the Father, has ordained your life in such a manner that you are not here this morning by accident. You are not at your home by accident. You are not in your workplace by accident. Jesus Christ has placed you as an ambassador to where you are in your life right now to be an ambassador for him. So often when we read Matthew 28, we focus so much on the go therefore, and our minds automatically go to Southeast Asia. We go to, we go to places like Mumbai where Wynton Vicky served. We go to places like Africa. Go therefore, but you don't realize, and it's been taught from this pulpit before, that the focus on that is not really go therefore, a better translation and a better uh, understanding, a better interpretation for application is, in your going, in your lifestyle, where God has ordained you to be, you are to spread the word. Just as Jesus Christ was seeking to do the will of the Father, we are supposed to be seeking to do the will of the Father in our lives, in our going. We don't have to go across the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean to do the will of the Father. We are called to share the word of Jesus Christ in our going. We are called to seek and to witness Jesus Christ began his ministry by seeking to save that which lost. He was out doing the Father's will, and so should we. Also, we see that Jesus was actually out with very, very common people. The text doesn't explicitly say this, but there are several things that we can see in the text that indicate that these were more than likely very common people. First off, they invited Jesus. At this point in Jesus' life, you wouldn't know him from anybody else. Uh, there's quite possibly the fact that since he was invited, this is actually a family member's uh, marriage. But Jesus is just the son of a carpenter. Probably at this time, Joseph is dead. Jesus has stepped up, and he's leading the family. He's the, he's the firstborn in that family. But he's with very common people. 
The text also, the bride and the groom and the family that's being represented here, they, they, their name is not mentioned. And scripture tends to name the things that it wants to draw our attention to. Later on in the, the book of Acts and elsewhere in scripture, there are names that are mentioned, some good, some bad, but their names are mentioned specifically to draw our attention to it so that we'll understand, okay, this, this gives us a little deeper appreciation of what's going on here. One of those is Cornelius, a very, uh, very well-known person in that area as working for the Roman Empire. Also, you have Herod. Herod's not just some government official. He's a very important government official that's calling the shots. To know that it's specifically Herod helps us to understand. Also, we have Simon the Magician, which is very interesting in this, uh, to compare against this text is because Simon the Magician in the book of Acts is one that was known to going about and doing all these wonderful miracles. And the people were amazed. But Simon got wonder, wonderfully saved and he dropped what he was doing and forsook his ways and started following the disciples. And when he followed the disciples, he saw the miracles, the true miracles that the disciples were working. And he was amazed with the disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't in awe of his own ability anymore because he quit that after he got saved. And when he began to follow the disciples, Scripture draws that out so we know Simon the magician quit and he was amazed. The amazer became amazed with what the disciples were doing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Also, which is very important that the text does draw to our attention, is that the bride and the groom ran out of resources. Now, in this day when they had a celebration like this, especially a wedding, it's not like you come in the afternoon and you leave in the early evening. This is the type of celebration that would go on for a week. It would go on for multiple days. And the important thing about this is that the, the, the groom was actually in charge of the, all the provisions. So it would have been a major point of embarrassment for, to run out of resources. Quite, quite possibly Mary might have been in, in charge or in some way in control of one of these aspects of the wedding, very involved in the wedding, because she's the one that actually comes out and says they've run out. So it's not just come and show up and have this meal for the, the day. It is a week-long uh, celebration. And to run out would have been a huge embarrassment. People with resources typically don't run out of resources. What's the conclusion from this? Why does it matter that he was with the people and he was with the common people? The conclusion is this. There is no one in here that's too high or too low to receive the, the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no one that is too high or too low to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no one too sinful. Part of a ministry that I've been involved in in the past at another church I was at as I was in a prison ministry. And I had people tell me, and I've even had people in counseling sessions outside of prison ministries so caught up in their own sin that they can't see the grace of God. And they've convinced themselves that their sin is too far great to be covered by the blood of Christ. First of all, just quite frankly, that's arrogance. There's nothing too great that the power of Jesus Christ can't overcome, especially our sins. But I was in a context where I was literally sharing the gospel with child molesters and murderers. I know that because they told me. And I freely offered the gospel to these people because I knew the power of Jesus Christ was far greater than their sin and could change a life that reprobate. He was with the common people. He was there to save and to seek that which was lost, the high and the low of society. And quite frankly, typically, Jesus tends to work through the low of society because it takes humility to come to the cross. Also within the event, we see that Jesus was for the celebration. Jesus was there, but he wasn't just like a wallflower, not participating in the service at all. He was there 
And these are, these are services, these are, there are passages like these that I just love. Because you see the, the heart of Jesus coming out. The passage that says that Jesus was hungry, Jesus slept, Jesus wept. These things that, that show us that while he's 100% God, it also shows that like we would enjoy a wedding celebration. He was completely human as well. And he was enjoying his time at the, at the feast, at the time of the celebration of this marriage. But I also have to think, too, that while he's at this, this celebration, this particular celebration that was a marriage celebration, he, somewhere in his mind, I, I imagine that he was sitting there thinking, you know what? They don't know this yet. But this celebration, this marriage, is the exact picture that I will use to teach the relationship that I have with my, my bride. I am the groom, the church is the bride. And just like I'm going to make that possible, that relationship possible through my death, that I will, I will secure my bride and I will be eternally its groom, I'm going to make this marriage celebration secure. I'm going to make it happen. So it's just a wonderful thing to see that even this first miracle is a picture of the things to come. We also see in here, as I spoke about earlier, there's a, there's a transition in the event. There's a transition in the event. Up to now, he's probably about 30 years old. He hasn't had very much at all of a public ministry, at least as recorded in Scripture. There are no other miracles. Some other religions, some other texts would teach that he had childhood miracles and things like that. But this text very clearly teaches us that this is the very first of his miracles. But there's a transition from very private to very public, but also relationally. You read the word there, woman, what does this have to do with me? And at first glance, that could come across in our English translations as somewhat, somewhat uh, disrespectful. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And none of us would typically take that as a respectful way to communicate to our spouses. But we have to, and we're going to have to do this a couple times this morning. We're going to have to take off our, our 21st century lenses and we're going to have to put on first century lenses. Because this is not at all a disrespectful thing towards his mother Mary. But rather, it is a very formal thing. It's a Semitic idiom. And, and literally, what it says is, what is this to me and to you? What is this to me and to you? Woman, what is this to me and to you? It's very formal, but it's very distancing as well. And basically, in this idiom, this, this particular way that he has chosen to share this and speak to Mary... He's saying, listen, I'm not about your business. I'm about my heavenly father's business. And there's a transition here that you need to see me less as your son Jesus and more as the promised Messiah. That is a transition that had to take place in Mary's heart. And you see that throughout scripture that she knows who he is. She knows what's to come because he even speaks very plainly to her. Even in this instance, he's saying, woman, my hour has not yet come. And the hour repeatedly in scripture is referring to his death and resurrection. So she knows that he's a special person. And kind of like last week where uh, we're speaking about John the Baptist, maybe not, or the week before last, John the Baptist kind of knowing but not fully realizing who Jesus is. That may have been Mary's situation. But there's a sense right now, there's a demarcation, there's a transition going on where Jesus very plainly says, Woman, what is this to you and to me? I'm about my father's business. I'm about my father's business. Moving through the text, we've looked at the, the 
the, uh, the event itself, what, what were the backgrounds going on to the event. But also what we want to look at is the miracle itself. Now there's a danger here because I think that as English readers and not having the Jewish background, the Jewish study that goes on and looking back into the Old Testament, there's a sense in which, and it's a good thing to be in awe of the miracle in and of itself. It is a true miracle. A miracle is any time that God steps in and disrupts the natural flow of his creation. So normally water does not turn into wine on its own. So it's a, it's a miracle in itself, and we should stand in awe of that because nobody can do that except for Jesus Christ or through the power of the Holy Spirit. But this, this passage is actually very, very rich in symbolism that Jesus designed as a teaching tool to point to himself and describe what it is that he's doing in his life. Everything in Scripture and everything in Jesus' ministry was very purposeful and very meaningful. So as we get into this section, as we're going from the event to the miracle, keep in mind that we need to put on those first century lenses and understand this event. Don't get hung up with the wine. That's not the point of the text. Don't get hung up with the wine. People will say there was no alcohol, there was alcohol. That is not the point of the text. Put on your first century lens and understand this with me. In the Old Testament, up to the point, that's all the scripture they had. They did not have their New Testament. Whenever you see in scripture that they're referring to scripture, the scripture for the New Testament saints in the first century was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament used wine, literal wine, in some form or another to convey a blessing. It was also used as a covenant blessing for the children of Israel. If God was wanting to bless his people, he said, listen, if you do my will, if you be my children and you show my glory to all the world, your grapes will bring forth wine. If you do the opposite of that, the opposite will happen. If you don't do my will, if you don't be my people, you will not have grapes and you will not have wine. It's the same thing with many other forms of blessing that God chose to use. But here particularly, keep in mind that they're looking at this wine and they don't have the negative connotation that we have. There was drunkenness. We see that in the life of Noah. There was drunkenness and there was abuse of wine in the Old Testament and in the New. But there wasn't the negative connotation that's almost explicitly tied with alcohol as there is today. It was a blessing to have the wine at the celebration. It is also true that in we're understanding the wine in the ancient mindset that uh, it, to drink straight water, it would be kind of like going to uh, South, uh, South Africa or some, some remote place that didn't have clean drinking water. They would mix the wine with the water so that it was distilled and purified and made good to drink. So it was a blessing physically, not just spiritually. Also, when, you, when you're reading texts like this, the blessing of God is completely different in our mindset than it is in there. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, our, our mind goes to, oh man, it rained because of the unjust. My picnic's destroyed. Something like that. I can't play soccer, things like that. But if you have a first century mindset, a person saying, hearing this when Jesus was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, they're going to be thinking, oh, wow, water is a wonderful thing. When rain comes, that is a blessing. So God's blessing falls on the just and the unjust. So God's blessing extends to all people. So understand that as we're working through this text. Don't get hung up on the wine. The wine is not the point. The wine is a teaching point. Try to get that first century lens on so that we can understand what's going on here. So he's bringing wine to the marriage celebration as a blessing. Now you have the pots. 
You have the pots. There are six pots, and I don't think that's there by accident. Typically, the number six is tied to the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. I don't think that there were six pots by accident. I think that there were six pots there as a teaching device to, to take these pots and assimilate them into some type, kind, of, kind of connotation with man. The purpose of it was for ceremony, for purification. The Jews would actually take these. They were actually made of stone, so it was easier to keep the water clean once it was clean. And they would take this, and they would use that water, and they'd use it for purification. But these pots were empty. Blaise Pascal said this, There is a God-shaped vacuum or a God-shaped hole in the heart of every person, and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ. Just like these pots, you and I are born with a vacuum, with a hole in our heart, in our body, in our soul, in our being, that is God-shaped, and it can only be filled by God through the ministry and the power of Jesus Christ. These pots were empty, but Jesus Christ came to fill them up. Jesus told the servants of the, the festival, the celebration, to actually go and fill these pots up. Now, I do think it's interesting that he didn't tell his disciples, he didn't tell Mary, he didn't tell anybody like that to go and fill the pots up with water. He told the servants at the festival, at the celebration, to go and fill up these pots. Can you imagine what it must have been like when they were there? These, these are people that might have known who Jesus was just by family association or being from the same village, but they would not have known Jesus, the guy that's working the miracles yet, because he's yet to do that. These servants are there, and they're being told by God that's not the governor of the feast. He's not there in any official capacity. He's just an invitee. And he's there, and he's telling the servants, okay, go and do something very strange. Because you've got to imagine that the servants are there, and they're, they're thinking, okay, does he not understand that we ran out of wine? We, we ran out of wine, and he's telling us to put, it, to put water in. But let me tell you, the, the servants, for some way or another, were obedient. And their own personal obedience, even when it didn't make sense, just like when God calls you to something that may not make sense, brought about personal blessing to themselves. Through their obedience, they were personally blessed. And through their obedience, other people were blessed as well. Just like when God calls you to do something, anything, if you are saved, God has called you to do something, whether it makes sense or not, it brings about personal blessing when you are obedient. And that blessing is extended to the church to the community, to the church at large, and to the world. That is what God does with our blessing. Notice also that the pots were filled to the brim. I can't help but make the allusion to Matthew chapter 5 and 17 when Jesus is preaching the servant on the mount. He says that this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Every Old Testament sacrifice prescribed was pointing to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The atoning sacrifices of the Old Testament were good. They were atoning sacrifices. They were God's will for that time. 
They atoned for the sin, but they did not do so in a personal manner. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do away with the law. The law is good. Paul tells us that in Romans. The law is a good thing. But Jesus is pointing over the law and he's saying, listen, the law is a good thing only because the law points to its fulfillment in me. The law is good. I am good. The only reason why the law is good is because it points to me. The animals that were sacrificed, the grain offerings that were made in the Old Testament were done on a continual basis. They were being done even at this time when Jesus is speaking because his sacrifice had not been made. But as soon as he, he made his sacrifices, the veil was rent in two and the sacrifices could stop because Jesus made the final sacrifices. They didn't need to be ongoing. They were completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they were good enough that Jesus Christ could do it once and it was good for all times and never needs to be repeated again. Just as the book of Hebrews speaks. Being filled to the, to the brim also speaks to the fullness of life. John ten seven through 10 says this. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. There is not just life that gives you. Jesus doesn't just step in that God-shaped vacuum. He steps into it and he stretches it out. He gives life and he gives it abundantly. We've looked at the event and the miracle. But as we study this text, this should fill in our hearts an expectation. There should be an expectation for, for not only the readers in John's time to whom he wrote these letters, but there is also an expectation in our hearts because we are the same people of Christ that existed 2,000 years ago. And his people today should have an expectation. And I think that this, this text here points to that. But what I'm going to do is move from the end of the passage Back to the beginning of the passage. Look at me. Look at... Don't look at me. Look at, uh, look at verse 1, if you will. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now listen, I miss this. I miss this. There is no word that is there by accident. But on the third day... This is the third day we spoke last week. Pastor Joe spoke on Jesus' interaction with Nathaniel... Three days from now is here, where we are today, on the third day. This third day should, should ring in our heads that there is another third day that Scripture mentions. This is a literal third day, and there's a transition that marks here from the private ministry to the public ministry of Jesus Christ. The second third day is the death, burial, and then the resurrection. Three days later, there was another miracle, and Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There is a, that was another transition he goes from the private ministry, public ministry. The second, third day, Jesus Christ began a new ministry. He ascended into heaven. And friend, right now, he sits at the throne. He sits on the right hand of his father, Jesus, uh, of his father and Jesus Christ is looking. He is calling out, seeking to save that which is lost right now. Ephesians teaches us that he has everything under his foot. He is the Lord of all. 
And there's a sense in which in practice and in our hearts, even as church, that is not fully realized yet. But rest assured that positionally and any time he wants to exercise that authority, all things are under his feet. And that is the ministry that he is exercising right now. Now, metaphorically, not a literal three days, there will be another third day coming. There will be another third day coming and his ministry is going to completely change because he's going to come from heaven and he's going to rapture. He's going to take up his bride. And this will be something that has never happened before. This second, this third, third day is going to be completely different. It's going to be a new transition. And what Jesus Christ is calling us to do today is to respond. And he wants us to respond just the same way that his disciples responded to him 2,000 years ago at this wedding in Canaan. What did they do? The text says right there in verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And listen to this. And his disciples believed in him. They believed in him and their lives began to be radically changed. If you are a Christian, you should be able to point back to a time before you were saved and now that you are saved, and your life should be radically different. It is a process that grows over the years, but your life should be radical. That word comes from the word root. You should be changed to your core. Now, just like the disciples, apparently, even though they had been called, they had not responded in belief yet, but they responded to this miracle. And this is the miracle that people today can be saved. And I ask you this right now. Are you saved? Have you been born again? Scripture uses this word explicitly. I can't use a better word because it is a word that Scripture uses itself. Can you say 100%, yes, I am, I've been saved. I have been radically saved. My life is different. And if you can't say yes to that, you need to respond today. Don't let today be another day that goes by where you don't respond to the gospel. The gospel is this, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Jesus Christ literally came to earth, 100% God, 100% man, lived a perfect life, died on a cross for our behalf, and he didn't have to. He rose again on the third day, and he lives. And all you have to do, as Romans chapter 10 tells us, is confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Don't let this day go by without responding to the gospel if you know that you have it. Because every time the gospel is presented to you and you do not respond, your heart gets a little stonier. Your heart gets a little stonier. And a time will come, just as I said, that Jesus Christ will return for his bride. And if you are not a part of that bride, it's too late. Paul writes elsewhere in the letter to the Corinthians that today is the day of salvation. Today. 